Hello everyone and welcome back to The Sign of the Dollar. Today I have with me on the other line common recurring guest Vince Dow. He's just come back from TSAS and uh, I wanted to talk with him a little bit about how that went. So for those of you who don't know, uh, TSAS is uh, a conference that was recently held uh, in DC where a lot of conservative speakers uh, spoke, uh, including the president himself, Donald Trump. Uh, so Vince, would you like to tell us a little bit more about TSAS? Uh, yeah, so TSAS is a Turning Point USA's Teen Student Action Summit. And uh, it, it went on for four days um, at the Marquee Mayor in Washington, D.C. And um, yeah, generally, it was, it was a pretty great time. We saw we heard from a lot of great speakers, like, you know, just obviously the president, but also like my father figure, Rand Paul, um, my <laughs> other father figure, Ted Cruz. And there was also, you know, great people like Dan Crenshaw, there's Michael Knowles. Um, it was it was a pretty great time. So how, how many people were there? Like, what was it? more of an intimate crowd where you could interact with the speakers and interact with the other people within the crowd? Or was it like a huge crowd where you felt like, you know, lost? So yeah, it was, it was interesting. So there's, um, there's like the, the, the auditorium, right in the hotel. And that's where the speakers go on. It's also like right before that, there's a little, I guess, I guess you call it like a media room or a little booth room. Like there's, there's different booths and stuff. And for some, mm-hmm. see, it depended on, it all depended on the speaker. Like some of this, like, for example, Michael Knowles, you know, Ben Shapiro's, I don't know, I guess little yeah. brother or whatever. But um, <laughs> yeah, he was in the, uh, the green room, like that kind of green room for a while and just meeting everyone. Um, and there, there were a few people like that. Like, I don't know if you know who Graham Allen is, they were there, but the, the more important mm-hmm. people know, they just came in the backstage, you know, said their speech and left. But um, it depended on the speaker. Okay. Like some people, like some people just stayed in the hotel, you know, um, Obviously, and I know I know you know the meme pages like typical liberal DC Drano. You know they were yeah. there throughout the conference. And oh, they, okay. they were easily accessible. You know I got a picture of Fleckas. You know it was um. So it just depended on the person. Wait, so if it was uh, the teen summit, then there were also adults there, or um, what were the regulations or whatever that in that regard? Well, see so yeah, how it works is um, it's it's mainly yes, mainly meant for um, high school students. College students are also allowed. But uh, for students, right, you, you can go. It's basically free. It, it, the whole thing, they, they pay for all your rooms. And um, you just only $15 for high school students, $30 for college students. But if you want to go as an adult, you would have to pay like a full ticket that like pays for everything. Like you don't get anything subsidized. That's basically what it is. So you would have to pay like it's oh. the, the, the adult tickets, like $500. And, you know, people like typical liberal Fleckas, you know, they're like big, big famous people. So they're, they're a special guest. I would assume they're getting free too. Mm. So, so... Were there a lot of adults there, or were they mainly teens? Uh, mainly teens. There are a few people's parents were there, but it's mainly teens. Okay. After speeches, did you did were there like Q and A uh, sessions where you able to in- interact and ask questions to the speakers? Well, again, that also um, depended on the speaker. Um, it was it was mainly went like this. You know, the more famous people, like the the more famous Paul, it was more famous politicians. No, they just walk out. But um, like I for example, I got to ask Michael Knowles a question, which was pre- pretty cool. Um, what did you ask him? I asked him like what he thought because I've seen he did he did a defense of Christopher Columbus, I believe, at the University of Notre Dame, and I asked him you know what his opinion was on kind of the United States' relationship with you know the Native Americans because obviously that's a something the left likes to bring up a lot about you know as just as like cannon fodder for reasons why America is a deeply racist and evil country. Um, I also said before that, uh, yes, I did say this. I'm sorry. I said that before that. Um, I was like, hi, Michael. I just wanted to tell you that you are objectively the better host of the Daily Wire compared to Ben Shapiro. 
and he, he really appreciated that. So that was pretty cool. Better than Ben Shapiro. <laughs> I mean, hey, I've 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 actually been doing hours of like analysis between them, and I I I believe that is true. Yes, really? Yes. H- have you watched Knowles for like an extended period of time? I, like, yeah, I challenge you, like watch. Uh, I wouldn't say so. I've seen quite a few of his videos, and then realize that because here's the thing, right? Knowles Shapiro is very good on like economics and taxes and healthcare, right. but Knowles can answer questions very well on everything. That's that's why I say Michael Knowles is like. The, but but Noel seems a bit more like normie. His his answers seem a bit more common, like what you'd hear from quite a lot of conservatives. Whereas Ben Shapiro really breaks it down and makes it more intellectual. Well, like again, I I challenge you to watch watch Noel's for extended period of time and then realize like, hey, this guy's pretty smart, you know. <laughs> like I I've I've been yeah. I've been doing a lot of comparisons between the two, and I, I just think that. Knowles is kind of more prepared because you know Shapiro's lectures he is always the same thing. Knowles is like prepared to take on different topics. He's prepared to you know dive into different stuff that he maybe he's not necessarily comfortable with. Um, okay. So yeah. I I mean fair enough. I, I I don't watch Knowles anywhere near as much as I watch Shapiro. So maybe that gives and, me and some also, bias. And also also Shapiro ticked me off. Um, won a war with Iran that that ticked me off a lot. So I'll say that. What 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 happened there again? I I wasn't really following that. Yeah, so Noel, I'm I mean not Noel. So Shapiro basically was I mean Shapiro's actually kind of been sort of a war hawk for like a lot of his political career, which is ironic. This was my probably my biggest problem with Shapiro is that you know I agree with everything. All small government, you know, lower taxes. Let's do something about the national debt. I agree with all that, but you can't be you know, so hawkish on foreign policy at the same time, because if you really believe in small government domestically, you should also believe that our government should have a small role in the world. But regarding right. specifically Iran, yeah, basically when, um, you know, a dr- our drone was shot down in Iran, Shapiro basically said that this is what we, he was mad that uh, Trump actually called off the airstrike on Iran, which I thought was a great idea, but he was basically saying like, oh, this is terrible because we were attacked, you know, and we need to act in self-defense. But I was like, okay, an airstrike killing, you know, hundreds of people and definitely causing war. That's not a just response to a drone being shot down in disputed territory. You know, it's just, it's disputed right. whether or not it was actually, you know, in, you know, U.S. Uh, international waters or in Iranian waters. But I was just like, come on, man. And I mean, Shapiro has written a lot about being pro-war. Like, actually, I saw an essay he wrote like 2007 or something where he was actually saying that, like, that he was, he was he was supporting the war in Iraq and saying that you know some of the wrong lines of um, like the the idea of an empire is like a glorious just and um like well principled one, and to me that was like okay, you believe in small government but you also believe in the principle of empire. I I don't see how they're compatible. Yeah, uh, I mean, yeah, there there are a few things about him. I I I agree with his ideology like mainly with a lot of what I've heard him say, and in fact even on this topic I've heard uh, one of. Uh, his speeches or monologues about uh, interventionism. And he made fair points about how a country should only intervene when there's a direct threat to their national security. But it seems that he wasn't really consistent with that claim uh, in this particular scenario. So what what would your criteria be for when a country uh, should be able to intervene in a foreign conflict or should be or, or what the criteria is for a country to respond to something that's happened to their military. Right. Well, I, I believe that a country needs to be directly attacked, you know. And what, what, what I consider to be a direct attack, I would say, you know, people have to, your citizens have to be, like, 
blatantly and intentionally killed in that attack, right? I don't think shooting down a drone in disputed waters is justification for war. It is justification for going to the table and considering war, but I don't think that's the justification for war. I think that someone, people people have to get killed. You know, I, I think it, like if, if you attack, so like, for example, I would say if Iran intentionally, you know, sent their fighters after one of our warships and intentionally tried to sink it, you know, that's a case where people would get killed. Yes, I would say that is just cause for war. But I don't think that um, mm-hmm. that an instance in which it seems like eh, this country is kind of threatening us, they're kind of like belittling us. I wouldn't say that is just cause for war. Um, so obviously, in a case mm-hmm. like 9-11, right, that is just cause Pearl Harbor. That Those are just causes of conflict. Um, but in, in most cases, I would say, you know, war is not the answer. I don't think it is a country's role or duty or any kind of moral duty to actually, you know, intervene in a country where their business is not at stake and, and it's the hard part about this position you know a lot of people would agree with this right if we're not attacked we shouldn't go to war but the hard part about this position is um people would say oh once you intervene in something like i don't know the rwandan genocide or something right like very very bad evil things that are going on and i guess there right. are some cases in which you know that are just such humanitarian crises that maybe it is a good idea to intervene but even then i would say it's hard because i think that by let's say the u.s intervenes in like um burma right if the U.S. were to intervene in Burma, all that would happen was even more people would get killed. And knowing our history of intervention, you know, it wouldn't probably just be intervening to save lives. We'd probably want, I don't know, for example, Burma's oil. So if we were to go there, we'd probably end up killing more people than the Burmese government already kills, create more of a disaster, you know. And basically what we have is uh, like a case like Iraq before the war where it's we put we put another brutal dictator in power or Iraq after the war where it's just chaos, terrorist groups rule and a lot more people are dying. Right. So, I mean, I, I agree with, with with what a lot of what you're saying, uh, and I've I've addressed my stance on interventionism versus isolationism before, and I have said that for the most part I am an isolationist, but I I'd say that there's two main cases within which it is okay for a country to intervene in a foreign conflict, and one case is obviously where the the national security of the country that is intervening is at stake. Uh, of, of, of course, if a certain organization or a certain country poses an existential threat to that country's security, they should have every right to intervene. But also if the, the stability of the world and the, and the security of the world is at stake, then and only if it's possible to subdue this conflict with intervention if if you do manage to analyze a lot of it find a lot of analysts who agree on the fact that intervening would be effective uh if if it's going to help the stability and the security of the world then i think yes they should be able to intervene but of course people might take that the wrong way if if it can be considered like in a loose manner so every single conflict that has some kind of humanitarian crisis or some kind of uh, human rights violations, even things that are quite minor, people might consider a threat to world stability and world security, and then they'd use that as a reason to go and intervene. But that's not the point I'm trying to make. What I mean is, like you said, with extreme examples like the Rwandan uh, genocide and other examples like that, as long as it's going to be possible to effectively intervene, then yes, it is reasonable for that country to intervene. But uh, apart from that, you were talking about um, the Iran situation. So I was thinking, you you said about what you'd think to go to war, right? Like if citizens of a country are directly attacked, if there was a bombing or something of the sort, then that is a reason to go to war. 
But what about just responding with military conflict? I mean, you never know when that military conflict could escalate into a war. But say that you're just doing like drone strikes or uh, sending some ground troops as a response to something that a country has done. When do you think that is reasonable to do? Well, like like I said, I, I think that, you know, when your citizens are attacked, you know, or maybe maybe in some cases where your interests are severely at risk, but I would argue mainly only when your citizens are attacked, I would say, yes, then it is all like I for some I consider um, war to be like the last resort. That means like everything's off the table. But I think when you attack our citizens, right. our country, our, everything's off the table. Um, see, the idea I, I have problems with the idea behind, oh, we were just going to airstrike them as kind of like payback. Like, like let's be honest, when you um, launch airstriking any like Iranian target that that is an act of war you know it's not like a you hit us once we're going to hit you once and we're not going to go to war no when you attack another country you know i'm pretty sure the i'm pretty sure like national international law would define this but when you attack another country and you kill their citizens you know that that's an act of war and I, so i think that once you take that step like like once you take that step as in this is we're just going to attack then we when we attack we are going to war you know we don't attack just to you know, kind of say, hey, stop it, or we're going to keep doing this. No, it's an act of war. And I would oppose any military action against Iran, even if it's meant to be just a little like measure of payback, I would oppose any military action against Iran, unless we are directly attacked. Because I believe once we attack Iran, war is on. So uh, have you heard what happened with India and Pakistan recently? Um, what was it like? It was like, what, three or four months ago, right? Like, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, it was, it was quite ago. some time ago. Yeah, right. So um, pa- pa- Pakistan, like a, a terrorist organization, but they had affiliations with the Pakistani government, uh, re- resulted in the death of some 60 uh, military troops, Indian army troops. And uh, India responded with surgical strikes. Um, a lot of people are denying that it happened. This is obviously political disagreements uh, um, because this was used as one of the things to help Modi's campaign, like obviously, since our entire country can unite on hating Pakistan, that's one thing that all political parties have in common. I mean, some less than others, but it still is there. So almost everybody in India can be happy if something like that happens. But a lot of people are denying that it did happen. But there, there is quite a lot of proof that it did happen. But e- even if we just assume that it did happen... What happened there is we didn't go to war, but because they killed our civilians and because this was a terrorist organization and we couldn't say for sure that it was the government, but we all know that the Pakistani government has ties with uh, the terrorist organizations within Pakistan. And there is some proof there, but I don't want to go too much into uh, conspiracy. But in that case, obviously, India and Pakistan have been to war before. Tensions have risen uh, it's it's become very, it's become to a, it's come to a point where one bad move from Pakistan could lead to a war. But in 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 a case like that, would you say that surgical strikes w- were like the effective way to go about it? Because what happened was instead of you know attacking civilians or sending ground troops, bombing uh, high profile areas or something like that, all they did was drop uh, surgical strikes on terrorist camps. So would you say that that would be an effective way of a country responding, even the U.S. responding to Iran if they if they did something that kind of aggravated them? Um, well, I guess it obviously depends on the kind of geopolitical situation. I don't know, you know, what the kind of the 
the situation, like specifically like the nature of the situation between India and Pakistan, like I know they hate each other, but I don't know like if if that would be considered a kind of a provocation of war by Pakistan, just like considering the situation. But no, I would not support mm-hmm. that in the case of the U.S. and Iran. And it's not that I, I don't think a surgical strike necessarily isn't a, a good thing to, as a kind of a hit back move. But in the case of the American Iran, you know, I, I, the Iranian the thing about the Iranian government is they are very um, defensive. Like they're very, it, it's a very, they're very militant in a way. Like I believe that mm-hmm. if we, once we make that attack, Iran would be like, no, it's time for war. You know, because they're just, it's just, I, I've been, I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm even, I remember this when I was a kid. You know, it's just Iran is just very, they're very provocative and and they're easily provoked. So like the second we, yes, the second we did a surgical strike. And, and that's the same thing with North Korea. Like, they're, they're, these are very defensive governments. They know the world is after them. And, you know, I believe the second we, we if we were to attack Iran or North Korea, right, the second that happened, it wouldn't just be like, hey, we hate you more. It's just going to be like, it's, 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 it is, it is cause for war. And that's not always true, actually. Like, I mean, I don't know if you remember this, but like about two years ago after Assad supposedly, you know, chemical strike his people, Trump launched um, some missile strikes on some, you know, Syrian government targets, and that 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 did not lead to war. But then again, that you know, you, you're talking about Syria, uh, a case where there already is a big civil war going on. There already is a lot of fighting compared to a country like Iran or North Korea, where the situation is completely stable. But like Iran, North Korea, they are peaceful countries in the sense that there's no war going on out there. So in that sense, we are like escalating this to a war zone, whereas you know Syria was already a war zone. So I guess no, I would not support you know strikes by strikes against iran but i guess there are some situations you know in which they do work but it, it just depends on the situation but if, if you know there's cases you know you know we do this it's going to war mm-hmm. yeah because because in with india and pakistan pakistan is a very like right now it's failing terribly their their, their country is literally relying on china there's so many there poor people there's so much trouble i mean of course you have the government officials who are all fine and, and good in terms of uh monetary and all of that because that's how it ends up being in countries like that but they're literally a crippling collapsing country so if they went to war they know that they're just gone there's there's nothing more to it if 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 they try to provoke us further if they responded to our surgical strikes we would destroy them completely and yes they have china on their side but we have the us on our side so yeah if if you're sure that a surgical strike or something like that is going to lead to a war with the nation and you don't think what they did uh is enough to provoke a war then I understand it. And in this case with Iran, it makes sense. So we actually went off on quite a long tangent talking about interventionism and military interference. I completely forgot that we started this podcast talking about TSAS. Uh, so, so let's revisit that. Uh, there was a few other questions I wanted to ask you. So were there any recurring themes that uh, came up in a lot of the speakers' speeches and monologues? And what did you find particularly intriguing or who's who as a speaker do you think really outdid themselves or or, or did a better job than you're expecting um uh, well, that's gonna be hard because most of these speakers i've heard talk like a million times like which yeah. makes it like hard to like hear anything new from i, I thought um let's see ted cruz was i thought was great because just because he has a lot of energy you know he, he was made a, he, and it, it was interesting. Some of the speakers, you're like, you know, that like they don't really realize they're talking to kids. 
some speakers try hard, too hard to talk to kids, but there's some that are just right. Like, so Rand Paul did a session um, that I, th I think everyone else was kind of asleep in, to be honest. But I thought it was very interesting. He talked a lot about waste in government. Um, I, and I've heard him talk about all these things over and over again, too. But he talked a lot about the waste in government. You know, there's I, that's something I noticed a lot. Was actually, there's, like, actual concern about the national debt, which I don't see a lot in our political sphere, Republican or Democrat. Um, so, so that was, that was pretty great. Um, I thought Mike, Mike Lee really outdid himself. That, that's the one speaker where I, I, I mean, I, I knew he was, he was a cool guy. He was kind of a tea party Republican, but I thought he, he really put an emphasis on, you know, liberty on actually limiting government. Like, like I said, on the national debt, um, I'd say that was my probably my favorite speaker. I actually I missed a lot of the speaker the boring speakers, which who knows maybe they weren't boring. Maybe they were actually made really good speeches, but I just thought it would be a lot more fun and productive to go to the White House and interview crazy protesters instead. So <laughs> that's that's what I was doing during that time. Yeah, uh, you're talking about how a lot of people fell asleep during uh, Rand Paul's session, and uh, I think that's uh, that's very characteristic of the conservative movement because. The, like the majority of them are just people like, oh, yeah, Trump's great, but they don't know much more apart from that. <laughs> They're just like, you know, Trump's great. Um, oh, a uh, small government. Oh, yeah, that sounds pretty cool. But 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 they don't really get into the philo the philosophy of it all, and they don't really they're not really interested in economics and other things that are more intellectual. They 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 only care about the typical talking points about how socialism is bad and how Venezuela is bad and how Trump is good and how the leftists are all bad. So what do you think of this simplified viewpoint? And did you see a lot of it when you went to TSS? Well, I mean, no, it's not really because Mike Lee made us made a sim had a very similar message. It's just it's just the fact, and I, honestly, I don't even know what people were thinking of Rand Paul because I just kept shouting, "I love you, Rand!" Like to to him at like the speech. <laughs> but um, I mean, Mike Lee made the same. I think it's just the fact that Rand Paul is kind of just a boring person, you know, like because he he talks very monotone. He's very like yeah, blah, blah, blah. you know, um. I don't know what people thought, but I saw a lot of people present the same message as Rand Paul and everyone was into that. Mm -hmm. So I just think it's a matter of sort of how you deliver the message. Now, it is true that there's a lot of conservatives that are kind of like uneducated. But then again, I don't think they would be the ones that pay like hundreds to thousands of dollars to go to go to this thing. You know, I think the people that go to this thing actually would be informed and, you know, would want to hear a lot of the uh, like fundamental, you know, principles of conservatism be referenced and that you know yeah i mean that's fair enough but I'd, I'd see a lot of people i mean there's a lot of even famous speakers and famous uh you know figures on instagram who have this similar uh simplified kind of viewpoint who don't really know much about the roots and the the, the intellectual thinking and the f philosophical thinking behind uh the idea of conservatism and uh right-wing philosophy for example you have people like charlie kirk i mean they do sometimes make good points. They do sometimes say things that are truisms, but but that doesn't make them... It's not like they bring anything to the table. A lot of the time, they just resort to typical talking points that every conservative has heard a billion t times over and over. So you have people like this who are uh, well-known, who are well-liked, but they they aren't that great in terms of their the, the actual ideas that they bring to the table. So because of the fact that speakers like this exist and that they're liked a lot and people pay to go see them, I would expect there to be a lot of people who, who are similar in, in, the way, in their way of thinking to these kinds of people.
Well, I mean, uh, you're asking me to call out people that are like very, very famous. I don't know if I want to do that. But um, <laughs> so I, I guess in the case of the typical, well, uh, here's the thing. I don't think people go to the typical liberal or really Charlie Kirk for like political political like philosophical ideas you know like typical liberal he makes memes you know i mean i mean he's a cool right. guy you know I, I met him he's a really cool guy but i don't think people mm-hmm. are exactly going to look at these memes to like th- decide you know what their political what they want their political philosophy to be and even in the case of charlie kirk you know charlie kirk is kind of an outreach master you know like he he People forget that he actually runs Turning Point. Like that's something I forget all the time. I think he's just a political commentator. No, he actually like runs the organization, right? Um, but even mm-hmm. then, I don't think a lot of people went to this to see Charlie Kirk. Um, I don't think they go to Charlie Kirk for really necessarily new political. Maybe there's some people, but I don't feel like a lot of people actually go to Charlie Kirk for political ideas. They go to they go to Charlie Kirk because they like the organization that he runs that actually pays the people that have the political ideas to come and speak to people, if, if that makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, that's why I yeah. detected the conference, too. I felt like people were really more interested in the other speakers. You know, they, they obviously clap for Charlie, and, you know, we appreciate Charlie Kirk. I don't think he's really the thought leader of conservatism that, you know, may, maybe Turning Point social media kind of portrays him as sometimes, but really I don't think he's the yeah. thought leader of, of conservatism. I think he's more of the soldier on the ground that runs the organization that gets the thought leaders of conservatism, you know, a spotlight. Right. Yeah, and and uh, I see that, and I and I respect them for that. And but it's just their way of delivery, the way that they go about uh, giving out their message. They say a lot of things that are quite obvious, and that a lot of people, uh, a lot of us have heard time and time again. And yeah, the point that you made that not a lot of people are really going to them for their uh, political ideology. Uh, I mean, that's fair enough. But I still see so many people who are influenced by them, especially on Politogram, who you know comment on posts of left-wingers and even my posts and instead of intellectually debunking what they disagree with or instead of explaining ideologically why they think that something is wrong they just uh, refer to like the typical talking points that you hear speakers like this always repeat and they just parrot these talking points and you know condescend and say that oh yeah you stupid leftist and all that obviously that's the same for the left. There's a lot of people like that. They, they, they just say, oh, yeah, you're just a racist and things like that. But I, I don't think the right is immune to people like this. And a lot of the times we, we try to act like we are. We try to act like we're, we're better than the left in this sense, at least. And while I would say that it's not as common, it seriously is a problem, condescension, even with uh, big political commentators, even if they're making good points, if they're condescending while they're doing it. Uh, there's no, no real point of doing that. There's no uh, product productivity in doing that. So these are the few things that I've talked about previously in my, in my podcast about my problem uh, with the modern conservative movement. And I certainly think that this is a, these are problems that we need to acknowledge, identify. Obviously, we're not responsible for uh, how other people act within the same movement, even if you do or do not identify yourself completely with the movement. But the point I was trying to make is that the right isn't immune to these kinds of things and a lot of the times we try to act like we are i mean i will say this though about specifically charlie kirk because I, I i know and understand the people the problem a lot of people have with them but actually having them seen you know talk for an extended time in person i i will say that he's a little bit more actually like when you actually last him talk like those those two minute talking those two minute clips he always does them you know for for for, for instagram but actually having listened to him talk yep. for like an extended period of time you know i wouldn't say he's like i still wouldn't say he's like my political like 
idol or whatever but i i would say that he's actually just hearing him talk for an extended period of time he's actually a bit more insightful and you know a little bit more i guess intellectual than most people would think but yeah i would say that obviously in any movement there are you know people that don't act in ways we would agree with there's people who are uneducated about the actual ideas There's, there's a lot of people that actually join conservatism just because they hate pc culture and want to piss people off you know those sort of i guess the Mm -hmm. the 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 worshipers of milo i guess you could say would would be the kind of people that would join conservatism just to piss off you know just piss off the liberals without actually that used to be me yeah yeah i I guess that was in a way that was sort of me too but um yeah i mean i I would just say that you know i don't identify with everyone in conservatism and i think the important thing is the ideas not so much the people that spread them or are or associate with them yeah so we're we're talking about conservatism and talking about uh, the ideological foundations behind it um but when when we actually talk about the definition of the word and and what it actually means and the roots of it I wouldn't really consider myself conservative. I'd consider myself right-wing, far right-wing, because of uh, economics, limited government that comes with libertarianism. Uh, But socially, I wouldn't say I'm conservative because I disagree with a a lot of views held by conservatives about, you know, not legalizing gay marriage, not legalizing weed, and um, in in general, thinking that homosexuality in itself is a sin. I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with being gay. So the, the, there's a few things like this, even religious things that I, I disagree with that would make me say that I wouldn't consider myself a conservative. I'd consider myself a right winger, not a conservative. A lot of people think there's no difference, but obviously there is. I would consider myself probably a neoliberal. Obviously, these labels are very hard because different people identify with the same labels and they may may have completely different ideologies. So obviously, it's always hard with these labels to say uh, what your ideology actually is. But if we're talking about the foundations of conservatism, I wouldn't really say that conservatism is a source of limited government and things like that, or, or um, you know, um, free market economy. That would definitely be a right-wing philosophy, individualism and things like that. And conservatism does, in part, uh, support this kind of philosophy. But then you also have this idea of collectivism, which stems especially in, in religion, where it talks about, yeah, we're all one and we all should love each other and all notions like this, which I completely disagree with. So what what do you think about that? Would you consider yourself a conservative in the literal sense of the word? Or w- w- would you say that you identify more with the conservative movement now, but it's not like you're traditionally or socially conservative? Or w- what is your view on that? Well, by the literal, it's, it's interesting because internationally, like every other country in the world, liberal and conservative mean the opposite they do in America. But like internationally, um, like the, the conservatives are actually, they are traditional, it's true. But they're actually, the, in, in terms of policy, they're, you, you'll see they're, they're actually the ones that actually advocate for like bigger government policies, more social authoritarianism, you know, less free markets. Um, so that, I guess that, that would be the literal definition of conservatism. But I always ask myself, like, what does conservative even mean at this point? You know, because... Like just, there's no definition for it because really you don't see American like people we consider American conservatives, they're not actually they're sure they might have some like religious belief but they're they're actually very like libertarian in a lot of ways and so I've asked myself like what does conser- American conservatism conserve and the best answer I've heard for it is American conservatism is about conserving American values yeah conserving the ideas of yeah. classical liberalism so it's interesting conservatism today is about conserving liberalism. 
like by, by classical yeah. liberalism, right? And so in that sense, yes, I, I would consider myself a conservative. Obviously, the words get messed up. Like whenever I debate Europeans, they're very confused. Like, what do I mean when I'm a conservative? Like, I, I remember this this guy who is he? I guess I guess you. I'm not just trying to say fascist, but you know, he's a borderline fascist. Um, like he believes in you know cor- corporatism, all that stuff. Um, he was mm-hmm. like, I don't understand. How could you be for free markets and like legalizing homosexuality if you're a conservative? And I was like, well, you know. <laughs> your word means totally different from what my word means you know and my my definition of conservatism is someone who conserves the ideas of classical liberalism and your your definition of conservatism is someone who conserves the ideas of i guess toryism you know so mm-hmm. I, I would consider myself yeah. I, I guess i guess neoliberal would be a great term for myself although it just gets confusing i think conservative is just the 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 term i use that most people like understand i guess in america understand what i mean but yeah i, I would consider myself a neoliberal by by the modern sense and a, a conservative by the contemporary sense right so i would say that the thing in the u.s is that both liberal and conservative are such umbrella terms so many different ideologies fit within the same word and when you're talking about the conservative movement you also have you know traditionalist older conservatives who are slightly authoritarian and uh, quite religious and these kinds of conservatives fit well with the definition of the word uh, but these kinds of conservatives are kind of put in the same bag as modern conservatives like us who who support libertarianism, who support liberalism in the classical sense of the word. And often they also support Trump. We also support Trump. I mean, it's it's not that all right wing libertarians support Trump. But the thing is that w- uh, we do get considered uh, in the same box when we're talking about um, modern political discourse and talking about the modern political climate. But the thing is, there are radical differences in our ideology. And a lot of people have these similarities in their ideology, but then also believe in authoritarianism. Like you have people who believe in the free market, but at the same time believe in social conservatism in terms of traditionalism and forcing traditional values on people. So what what, what do you think about this? And do, do you think it makes sense to put people... In, in the same term, uh, like consider them as part of the same ideology or put them in this box? Well, I think this might be the greatest, you know, thing about the word alt-right becoming a thing because now we can actually mm-hmm. sort of differentiate who are the very authoritarian, you know, traditionalist sort of, you know, I guess conservatives, but now, now we can call them alt-right and we can differentiate those hey the the alt-right believes in way bigger government they believe in traditionalism they don't believe in free markets you know they, they don't believe in really really a lot of the fun core principles of our, our country you know they don't believe in the idea of america they actually believe in a white ethno state right and i think it's great that right. now we can differentiate like when, when you're asked are you conservative so like it's nice because when you when you ask people you're conservative now they can say you know yes i'm a conservative i believe in conserving the principles of classical liberalism or you can say, hey, I, I'm alt-right, you know, and I believe in preserving, or not being preserving, creating a white ethno-state, and um, I believe in authoritarianism, bigger and all that stuff, so. Right, but then you also have some people in between who are economically um, right-wing in the sense that they believe in free markets, but then at the same time are authoritarian and believe in traditionalist uh, values and believe in forcing such values onto people and socially are not libertarian at all. So there still is confusion there because they would consider themselves conservatives and wouldn't consider themselves alt-right, especially since they wouldn't necessarily support a white ethnostate, but they would support forcing religious values or, for, or forcing traditional values onto people regardless of their color or their religion. I, I will say this, so though, the, I, I, think, I think that's very rare. 
And the reason I say that's rare, I mean, there might be some weird political gram pages that are like run that, but I think it's very rare that someone would be, hey, I'm for free markets. I believe in letting people whatever doing whatever they do want to do economically, and then suddenly when it comes to social issues, you're like, no, you gotta follow what I do. You know, I think it's people want control or they don't want control. People who don't want control generally are not going to want control in most aspects of life and people who want control are going to want control in all uh, aspects of life so I, I do think that is kind of a rarer and, and i mean there, there's probably some people out there but i think that's kind of a rarer sort of you know position i mean i i, I wouldn't really say so because i've seen so many people like this and I, i've seen especially the the in-between you know kind of um, conservative movement, not the modern or the traditionalist, but there are people who are religious, who do have slightly authoritarian values socially, um, and support free markets. I mean, even if you want to talk about the basic examples within the Republican Party, you have people who support mainly free markets, but then at the same time are vehemently against legalizing gay marriage, legalizing marijuana, especially legalizing marijuana, by the way, and also against, what was I saying? I don't remember what the last one was, but those two are enough to you know, give the example of quite a lot of people within the conservative movement who are economically libertarian, but then when it comes to these things, these issues specifically, they are against them, which would be considered socially, socially slightly authoritarian. Well, I guess that, that's who I would call the moderate conservatism, but it, but it, it's the moderate conservative. But it's interesting. You'll notice that these people, yes, they're there for capitalism. You know, they're for a market system. But you actually, if you actually question, I've talked to a lot of these people. If you actually like question these people, you'll notice that they're actually le- way, way less far right on economics than you and I. So I, I guess it is a sliding scale spectrum, right? Because I would say that. The farther right you go in terms of economics, you'll notice the more socially libertarian. The more libertarian you get. Yeah, these people are a little right. bit less right on economics, and you'll notice the court. Like I said, people who want power always want power, and people who don't want power never want power in that sense. So that's why I would say, you know, you'll, you'll notice none of these people are exactly picking up books by Milton Friedman or you know Friedrich Hayek and, and actually like reading them and like following the stuff, right? Like they'll they'll mm-hmm. they'll consider, hey, I, I support capitalism, you know, I don't support like this, these far left principles. But you notice they're actually they're not as far right on economics as you or I. You know, they they won't they're not gonna go out. They're not exactly these are not the people who get out in front of you know the Federal Reserve and start protesting. You know, these are not the people that will tell you that no, like they'll be bold enough to say no, we should get well the rid of the welfare state, right? You'll notice they have very moderate positions on all these issues. Yeah. And I'd say that there is, to some level, some kind of confusion about the uh, economic axis. Some people, I would say, consider it more of a traditional axis. You see a lot of people who call themselves far right, who don't support free market, but are very, very traditionalist. And in that sense, they say that they are far right. And I've seen like many people like this. And there's a lot of confusion, even with people who aren't like this, about what far right really means. You, you see a lot of left wingers who think far right means that you're a traditionalist, you're against gay marriage, against all of this. But this is slightly authoritarian. If you're talking about the economic axis, that has nothing to do with it. And in fact, if you are more far right in terms of the economic axis, you are more likely to be libertarian. So when I sp- speak with a lot of leftists and liberals about my ideology, and I talk about how I'm far right economically, I support free markets. And then they also ask me about gay marriage and uh, marijuana and things like this. And I'm, I'm all for legalizing them and I'm a social libertarian. And they're like, how's that? You're far right. You're, you're traditionalist. I'm like, no, I'm not traditionalist. So there is this kind of confusion about the axis and what that axis really means. If you're considering it the economic axis or if you're con- considering it uh, the axis of traditional values or however you want to put it. 
All right, so uh, I think that'll do it for us now. I mean, we started talking about TSAS, but then went to interventionism, military um, Yeah, this, ha- this had nothing to do with TSAS. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then we went to, we went to a, a deep talk about what conservative ideology really is, but <laughs> it was a good talk regardless. Um, yeah, you guys heard about how TSAS was from somebody who was there. So uh, hopefully you enjoyed that podcast and uh, that'll do it for us today at the Sign of the Dollar. Thank you for listening.